All right, let me know when we're ready to start. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Welcome back to our study of Revelation. We are in chapter 12, looking at Revelation's version of what holiday? What holy day? Christmas. Christmas like you've never seen it before. So, we maybe got six verses or so in, if memory serves. Let's just recap those very quickly to bring us up to speed. Um, as you're opening to Revelation 12, verse 1, we'll simply recall that in the structure of Revelation, we are in what is called an interregnum or a pause between the, seven, the three sevenfold actions. You remember? The first action is, it's probably best to think of, if you're going to think of things spatially, you know, kind of create an analogy in your mind, a visual image of the structure of Revelation. Revelation does not begin and simply run chronologically from chapter 1 to chapter 21. Rather, Revelation is repeating cycles. So rather than, rather than kind of structured in your mind as this horizontal reality, I think it's, it's better to structure in your mind as a vertical reality. From uh, at the very top, the source from which all of Revelation comes and the point to which all of Revelation is continually returning is what? Do you know? Okay, good. Then I don't feel guilty about saying it again at the beginning of every single class. <laughs> I did for a minute. I thought if everybody immediately gave me the answer that I needed a new shtick. Apparently not yet. Uh, that or else you're intimidated into answering. So, so it's the throne. It's the throne room of God, the one who sits upon the throne. Remember, he's unspeakable. He can only be described in terms of the, the glistening and shimmering of jewels. And um, he is encompassed in this sphere of rainbow light, the one seated upon the throne. In front of him is the Lamb. And the Lamb, again, if you're, if you're visualizing Revelation, and you're staring right at the throne of God, the Lamb is such that the appearance is as though he is seated on the throne himself, seated with the one who sits upon the throne. And that Lamb has some unique characteristics, of course, he looks as one being slain, and yet he stands. He looks as one gravely wounded, and yet he stands. Of course, that's perfect description of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Again, visually. And then in front of him is the seven great torches, the sevenfold uh, lamp of God. It represents the Holy Spirit. Now, you remember the thing about the lamb's eyes, how they're described being flames of fire, and there being seven of them. So again, if you're, if you're visualizing this, you have the seven candles burning flame. Right behind that, the seven eyes of the Lamb, and right behind that, the throne. So that you don't really need a doctrine of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. You see and behold and experience the Trinity. There's no doubt in your mind. And that's the revelation of God in heaven, okay? That then is the source from which all the rest of revelation flows. And again, I was depicting it for you vertically so that, so that the first cycle of sevens, the seven seals, then progress through time, beginning with the Christ event, the incarnation, death, resurrection, ascension. That's what I mean by Christ event, and progress to the end, seven seven. Uh, seals. Okay? Then you have an interlude that's the church. Then you have the next set of seven, which is the seven trumpets, what we just finished. Seven trumpets. Then you have another interlude, which is the church. Okay? And you remember the church here in, as the two witnesses, measuring the temple, the two witnesses. Okay? 
And then what will you have, and that covers the same period of time, doesn't it? From the Christ event to the end. Okay? Now we have the interregnum or pause, Revelation 12. Okay? And that's going to be the same thing, the Christ event to the end. Then we go into our final cycle of seven, which is going to be the censors poured out from the Christ event to the end. And all of it kind of crescendos and climaxes then um, in, in the new heavens and the new earth, the heavenly Jerusalem descending. So again, all of it flows from and leads back to the throne room of God. The climax of Revelation, the throne of God in heaven, joins itself to earth, and the dwelling place of God is with man. So what the, what the incarnation portends to, that is God united with man, enfleshed in one Christ, that portends, that points and directs to the culmination of this age, which is God dwelling with man. The dwelling place of God is with man. So that effectively the entire human race is incarnate, albeit not in, not in such a way that we become the everlasting Son. That's impossible. But we are as one with Him as you can be and still be creatures. We are as glorified as you can possibly be in this age uh, while still being creatures. Okay, that's the testimony of Revelation, the testimony of the, of the Scriptures. So, we find ourselves then in the interregnum talking about, of course, Christmas, the Incarnation, and leading then unto the end of the age so that we will be prepared uh, to see the last cycle of seven. All right, chapter 12, verse 1, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. Only Christ so far in Revelation has been described as being clothed with the sun or shining with the sun. Being clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. There's the first sign, a woman giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems. We talked last week about the symbolism of the seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems. It's not all that important. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. This we find to be a poetic expression of the devil, the great red dragon, leading astray approximately a third of the other angels in his rebellion uh, these angels then becoming what, what we know as uh, demonic powers, principalities and powers of darkness. Last part of verse 4. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Of course, the immediate historical reference to that would be Herod who immediately kills every, uh, ch every male child under the age of two in Bethlehem, trying to devour this one child. He devours the other children. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And that takes us back to a psalm that we've already studied in connection with Revelation. This is... Uh, the messianic, the messianic referent, messianic title, to rule the nations with a rod of iron, belongs to Christ. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. There would be a reference to the ascension. To the ascension. We don't see much of Christ's life here. Surprisingly, we actually see it rather understated. But, of course, the import of his life and the import particularly of his ascension is what's in view and what's shortly to come. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Notice also who's missing. A husband or father, a man. So very clearly a reference to the virgin conception and the virgin birth. 
He's caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness. Now, having gone through the seven trumpets, we recall uh, the first four trumpets in particular having to do with the plagues, very similar to those plagues that befell Egypt when God was setting his people free. And of course, immediately freed from Egypt, they go where? Into the wilderness, right? Um, or you could even say, properly speaking, they pass through the, the Red Sea and enter the wilderness. So then it's no surprise to us that in terms of the Old Testament theme and motif and the sewing together of these various te- uh, themes, the layer upon layer approach that John takes in uh, Revelation, that we meditate on this, that the woman departs into the wilderness where she has a a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. And of course, that's roughly the period that we saw earlier back in chapter uh, 11. If you look back to... hmm, Do I have that right? Yes, I do. Uh, Chapter 11, all the way back to chapter 11... End of, verse, end of verse 2 and into verse 3, you have the 42 months, the 1,260 days, the three and a half years, the uh, time, times, um, yeah, it's time, time, I'm sorry, time singular, there's one, times, there's two, and half a time, which will come up, and that's, so a time, one, times, two, and half a time, 3.5. So 3.5 years, 42 months, 1,260 days. This is the symbolic uh, number, the symbolic length of the suffering of God's people on earth. And it just simply recurs in, in Revelation. Okay, so thus we see the woman then... Um, from, again, now this is very interesting in terms of understanding Revelation symbolically and understanding the time frame. The woman, no sooner does she give birth to Christ, she, is, uh, she flees into the wilderness and she has a place there prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Has God stopped nourishing his church? No. So you can see that this 1,260 days is ongoing. That is a simple numeric marker for us, understanding that that period of time is going to be one of tribulation, one of great difficulty. And of course, we'll see that that shortly unfold. Okay, well, we went into a little bit more detail on that section last week. So if you're super interested, you can check that out. Otherwise, let's move on. We've got two signs in heaven, the woman who is given birth, Mary, and yet also more than Mary, Mary representing the church. And we have this red dragon who is Satan, and of course, in a sense, also more than Satan, the whole host of demonic forces arrayed against the woman and her son. Both of these images, both of these visions take place in heaven. So then, verse 7 should not surprise us in that respect, but it will in others. Now, war arose in heaven. Heaven. So how many of you picture heaven as a place where there's been warfare? That'll rearrange some mental furniture, won't it? (laughs) Absolutely. Well, we already saw this in part that there are a whole bunch of things about heaven that are completely alien to our common understanding of how heaven is. Maybe I'll simply point out three, including the one we just touched on. In the first place, there are martyrs under the throne of God crying out, how long? How long until you bring justice? How long until you bring vengeance? If that doesn't fit your view of heaven then you might want to adjust it to the biblical view of heaven. How long, by the way, also shows us in heaven there is a passage of time. Passage of time. We are also told in the first interlude in the seven seals with the church that the Lamb, 
in the midst of the throne is also a shepherd unto the people who are coming in from the great tribulation, entering the throne room scene. That's us as we die in faith in Christ. And there the Lamb is doing something else quite unpredictable based on our American version of heaven. He is wiping away every tear from their eyes. Wait, there's tears in heaven? And now we get to Revelation 12, and I'll simply point out the obvious here. There is also war in heaven. War in heaven. While heaven is most certainly paradise, while heaven is described in the scriptures as the throne of God and earth his footstool, which is an amazing picture if you allow yourself to visualize that, while that is certainly the case, it is certainly also the case that the scriptures tell us there must be not only a new earth, not only a new visible cosmos, but also a new heaven, or more specifically, heavens, the invisible cosmos. It is not simply a new earth, but a new heavens and a new earth. And again, we'll see that at the climax of Revelation. But one of the things we need to understand is that the heavenly reality, when we die and we're with the Lord and it's paradise and it's wonderful, all of that's true. It takes away nothing from that. And yet, heaven itself is a place that has been ravaged by sin, Satan's sin, the other fallen angels. It is a place that has been ravaged by war. It is a place where there, is, where there are tears and, where, and a place where there is still longing for a fulfillment that has not yet come. Heaven and earth are already locked together for the judgment of the heavens and the earth, where not only will human beings be judged on the last day, but also the angelic beings will be judged on the last day. Then comes the great departure, the joyful departure of all the wicked ones who hated God, and namely Satan, as we shall see, who attempts to supplant the Son of God himself. All of the evil is kicked out and the joy begins. Now that fits perfectly with our text today and with, I mean, in the divine service. Isaiah talking about the vineyard and Jesus' parable about the vineyard. It's all joy, but then there are things that ruin the joy, that steal the joy away. In Isaiah, it's sour wild grapes, and in uh, Jesus, it's wretched and wicked tenants. The sour and wild grapes have to go as do the wretched and wicked tenants. Then comes the new heavens and the new earth. All right, so that ought to change our mental furniture in terms of uh, what heaven is like. But there's probably some more furniture that's going to be arranged here in a minute, unless you've been through this before. All right, now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. So it is angelic warfare in heaven. The leader of the angelic host is Michael, the demonic host, the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Now, this is interesting, and we'll see this confirmed all the more in just a moment. But when, according to Revelation 12, when does this war in heaven take place? In, in Milton's Paradise Lost... And in Western Christianity, we have gotten this entirely unbiblical idea that there was war in heaven, and that took place somehow way back at the foundations of the earth. There's not one shred of biblical evidence that teaches that. How do we know that Satan had, had free reign to, to do as he pleased in heaven? Uh, and in fact, to enter heaven and depart heaven anytime he pleased. Job. Job, absolutely. And though maybe a little less certain than Job, so too with those, those two names that came up with, uh, with the reconstitution of the temple and the two witnesses, the two textual 
reference to the two witnesses back in Zechariah uh, chapter 4 would be Zerubbabel and Joshua, the one in the, in the royal line of David and the new high priest. And Satan comes down and in particular accuses Joshua, which of course shares a name with Jesus and hugely significant, but accuses him and discusses uh, with, accuses him basically in the presence of God that he is unclean. The imagery of this is his priestly garments have been soiled. And so the true Joshua, Jesus, comes and cleanses his garments and fights Satan on this point. And the ministry in the new temple can be established. Okay? Um, but for our purposes then, it's sufficient, it's, well, yeah, for our purposes, it's sufficient to say that Satan can accuse and his accusation is heard in heaven. How about that? Now, what we're going to see and have already seen in part is that this war that takes place creates an environment such that there is no place in heaven for the dragon. He can no longer enter heaven. You can see that in the text already. So too, and we don't necessarily need this, but following the chronology that the text has given, we're talking about the birth of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus, and the child goes up into heaven, and then immediately there is war in heaven. That is to say, once Christ enters heaven, once he ascends into heaven, war breaks out, and Satan and his angels are cast out of heaven. No more can they enter heaven. Okay. If that doesn't make sense, let's just carry on, and you'll see it make more and more sense as the text rolls along. So, once more, the final clause in verse 8, no longer any place for them in heaven. Verse 9, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, reference to... Garden of Eden, absolutely, Genesis. Now we know that the great dragon is also the ancient serpent, who is called the devil, Diabolos, the overthrower, uh, sometimes the deceiver or liar, <clears throat> and Satan, which is probably a, a, rather than a personal name, Satan is probably more indicative of his office. So Satan means accuser. The Satan is the accuser. And it is, it is rightly his place and role in heaven to make accusation. That's why he's making accusation against Job, making accusation against Joshua, <coughs> making accusation against all the saints of God. He is sort of the upholder of righteousness and the enforcer of righteousness. But for some reason, he has been cast down. Well, certainly due to his own being unrighteous, but it's uh, his own unrighteousness, but more than that. So again, this is the great dragon who was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, this, by the way, is how we interpret verse 4. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. That's where we read that, at the stars there as angels. Because here in verse 9, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they, namely our brothers, have conquered him, the dragon, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. 
Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. All right. So the ascension of Christ, which I think sometimes liturgically when we celebrate this, strikes us as like this somewhat anticlimactic event. It sometimes strikes us as like, well, Elvis has left the building. Jesus has gone up. Uh, and, that, and no more. And no more. But this passage here in Revelation 12 takes us all the way back to chapters 4 and 5, where if you recall, in John's description of heaven, you see, you see the lampstand, you see the throne, that is, you see the Spirit, you see the Father, but someone is conspicuously absent. And then remember, there's, there's great mourning in heaven because no one is found who can open the scrolls until a certain someone arrives. And that certain someone is the Lamb of God. And he ascends to the Father, takes the scrolls from the right hand of the Father and opens them. That is, the ascension of Jesus is the coronation and the unfolding of God's final plan of salvation. It can only be accomplished through the death and resurrection of Jesus by the sins of the world being atoned for in him, and by his resurrection, whereby he makes himself a new Adam. The dawn of a new human race, the dawn of a new creation, made possible only by the death through whom the world was created and the resurrection of the one through whom the world was created. We see the same thing then at the coronation of Jesus, at his ascension as he comes into heaven. There is instantly a war. Satan knows he has been defeated. He knows that his main power, sin, getting us to be alienated from the one who is life, and thus working in us through sin, death, Sin and death, his main powers have been undone. How so? Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree, putting them away forever. Christ was raised by God, loosed from death. All the sins taken away, and now death taken away. Satan's power is completely undone. The language that takes us to these ultimate categories uh, is verse 9 we, when we are told that this great red dragon is the ancient serpent. What's the first proclamation of the gospel, the proto-evangelium in the Old Testament, where God says not to Adam and Eve, but to the serpent, the ancient serpent, the seed of the woman will crush your head. You will bruise his heel. He will crush your head. So that is precisely what we are seeing as Jesus ascends, you know, 40 days after his resurrection, as he ascends into heaven, Satan is there. He has his authority to accuse the brethren day and night. And when the crucified and risen lamb, the one who crushes the serpent's head and denudes him of all his power, when he arrives, Satan has no choice but to fight to try to make a stand and retain his position in heaven, to accuse. But when the Lamb ascends with his blood shed for our sins, risen in his body and death defeated, the devil has no case. There's even the language of the, uh, of the courtroom here, where the kings of old would judge cases and would judge the cases of Israel. You have this sense in which Satan, like a prosecuting attorney, is accusing the brothers day and night. So he's sitting up there going, oh yeah, you know, look at that guy, Pastor Rody. you know, what a wreck he is. Look at how he sinned on Monday and then Tuesday. And if you thought Tuesday was bad, just wait till you get into Thursday. Oh my goodness, right? Now, the blood of the lamb negates negates that accusation. So Jesus stands up as a defense attorney and he says, pardon, pardon me, what sin? Oh, oh, those sins that I bore in my body, that I paid the penalty and the debt for? Justice is served. They're taken away. There is no debt. There is no penalty. 
move to dismiss. And God declares, Pastor Rody, each one of us, not guilty. And then the beautiful thing, the beautiful thing of our Lord Jesus and our God is he works through means. So Jesus himself, I mean, think about this. Satan tempted him in the wilderness. Satan tested and tempted him the whole way along, taunted and irked him every step of his ministry, tortured him in the Garden of Gethsemane, tortured him on the cross, did did his absolute worst like he's never done to any other human being in all of history, and Christ defeats him defeats him. And now at this great moment where Christ could grab him by the scruff of the neck and boot him in his satanic hiney right out of heaven, he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. You have to love Jesus. You have to love Jesus. He is such a man. Such a man. So manful. He just says to the bailiff, Saint Michael, Michael the archangel, remove him. (laughs) That's it. He's done. And Michael gets up like a bailiff to remove him. Up stands the dragon's army. Up stands St. Michael's army. And the rest is history. Satan and his foes are cast out of heaven. What a beautiful, blessed scene. Now, from our vantage point, as, as sinners who believe in Jesus, from our vantage point, this is what it looks like. Verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now... Again, at the ascension of Jesus, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. In what sense? In the sense that, well, God as the Son, I mean, the Son of God as God always had power and authority. But this isn't merely the Son of God. This is the Son of God made flesh. This is true God and true man, and all authority has been given to him. Thus, the authority of his Christ, his Messiah, have come. He is the true king, not Satan. For the accuser of our brothers, that's Satan, has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before the throne of our God, and they, that is we, have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their witness. And there, that, that's the language of martyria, from which we'll later get martyrdom as a proper title. Um, and And you can see the close connection with the next clause. For they love not their lives even unto death. So then this is the description of every last person in heaven. He did not overcome the accuser by living a holy enough life. He did not overcome the accuser by getting more credits than debits in his spiritual bank account. He didn't get into heaven by making up for everything and making it all all right. He got up into heaven for one reason, the same reason why each one of us will one day be in heaven, because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of the testimony, the word of the witness. Remember who the true witness, the true martyr is, our Lord Jesus Christ, and in sharing one faith with him, one faith given to us by him, we participate in his victory. Now, Lutherans will love this blood of the Lamb and this word of the testimony because this fits perfectly and concretely with our understanding of what divine service is. The very first part of our service we call the service of the the word. The service of the word. Quite literally, quite literally, the word of their testimony, the service of the word. Second part of our divine service is the service of the sacrament, and that the heart of the service of the sacrament is the cup, the cup of the blood of the Lamb. And doesn't Jesus himself say this very thing? When he takes the cup, he says, drink of it, all of you, this cup is the... But I thought the New Testament was a bunch of books at the end of the Bible. Where does the Bible teach that? There's not a single place in the scriptures, Old Testament or New, that teach us that the New Testament is a set of books. The one place where Christ teaches us what the New Testament is, he says, it's right here in this cup. It's my blood shed for you once and for all on the cross given for you to drink for the forgiveness of your sins. 
There's the blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony in divine service. We have faith in these things and we love not our lives unto death. Whoever loves his life, Jesus says, will lose it. Lose it. The harder you grab hold of the stuff here, the more quickly it slips through your fingers. The more you make yourself at home here, the faster time passes and reveals it's no true home at all. But to love our lives not unto death, but to love Christ's life unto death. Though you die, Jesus says, yet shall you live, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. There's the sacrament of all sacraments, the mystery of all mysteries. Baptism, absolution, the Lord's Supper, the Word, they all work to create this faith and this mystery, this sacramental finality within us that even one day, if you're around for my funeral and you're looking at my body in the coffin, you'll say, whoever lives and believes in Jesus has never, never dies. He's not dead, he's alive. In fact, he's more alive than he's ever been. He's more himself than he will ever be. And at home, even though it's not our final place, more at home than we've ever known. That's the destiny for each one of us. Again, given by our Lord Jesus Christ. So then we find ourselves engaged in spiritual warfare, and our weapons quite literally are the word and the blood. The word and the blood. Christ is our life. If we lose our lives for his sake, we gain them. All right. Then, needless to say, verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens. I mean, heaven is in great jubilation because the devil was kicked out. I mean, could you even imagine? You're up in heaven and there's the devil ruining everything, poisoning everything. Now, finally, he's kicked out. Can you even imagine what that party must have been like? <laughs> A foretaste of the feast to come. Revelation ends with a great big party. The best of all parties, a wedding party. And so many of Jesus' parables and teachings have to do with that same reality, a great big party and especially a wedding party. Celebration has already taken place in heaven. It got much more paradisical now that Satan's gone. But what's happened? He has fallen down to the earth. Yeah. Rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. He lost the battle in heaven where he was strongest, where, he, where his throne was established. He's going to lose his place on earth, just as Jesus has said. And then what's going to happen on earth? The same party that happened in heaven. Only heaven and earth will be made one, made new, cleansed, and the party will ensue. Okay. So the devil is thrashing around because he knows his time is short. He's like a, he's like the, it's like the dragon has been mortally wounded, if you'll allow a little poetic license. It's like the cross, as, as it stands in the sanctuary, looks like a sword. And Christ Jesus has taken that sword and plunged it through the serpent's heart. And he is simply thrashing about madly in his death throes. The serpent's head has been crushed. The dragon's heart has been pierced. And this is all he's got. And in fact, all he's got really is a lie. That's all he's really got. It's completely and entirely powerful if you believe it. If you don't believe it, if you entrust yourself to the word and to the blood, no power at all. No power at all. Okay, verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Ah. This is where it's Mary, but more than Mary. It's also Mary as icon of the church. And so immediately Satan begins to persecute the church. And of course, that rings absolutely true in the historical circumstances in which Revelation is written. How do we understand the fact that people are now persecuting us? That our former brothers, the Jews and the pagans, have a vested interest in seeing us all renounce our faith or die. And Revelation gives the lens. 
It's because Satan has been defeated and thrown out of heaven, and now he's at work persecuting the woman, the church on earth. He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, and that is precisely our reality today. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, uh, likely a poetic reference to Isaiah, where um, God, God gives us the, the wings of an eagle. Who's the, who's the Christian, like in the 80s, uh, the Christian singer, the lady who sang on eagle's wings? Do you remember? I would lift you up on eagle's wings. I think it made it somehow into our Lutheran service book. It's not that great. It's not one of our proudest moments. But, the, but what's even more humorous to me is it's this really romantic, dreamy song about on eagle's wings. A more direct translation is on buzzard's wings. <laughs> kind of ruins the poetry, doesn't it? But yeah, I mean, we always think of you know, maybe a bald eagle soaring around majestically. Well, they don't have those in that part of the world. They're carry-on eaters, but... Okay, so there is, a, there is a great eagle. The woman is given the two wings of a great evil. God is supernaturally intervening to preserve the church so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to a place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. And there again, referent back to verse 6, the 1,260 days, three and a half years is roughly that. Okay. And again, a time, that's one year, times plus two more years, and half a time is how you get three and a half years. And again, see how that encompasses the Christ event to the very present. The church on earth is fleeing from the serpent, and we are being nourished in the wilderness, and just as the Old Testament saints went into the wilderness, not to stay there, but to do what? Go into the promised land. So we are presently in the wilderness awaiting to depart and go into the true and everlasting promised land. It's the book of Hebrews, remember, that goes through all the saints who are promised place in the promised land, and every single one of them, these died without having received the promise. These died without having received the promise. When is the promise to Abraham in the Old Testament saints fulfilled? In the new heavens and the new earth that last forever. That's when the promise to Abraham and the Old Testament saints is fulfilled. That's when the woman is taken from the desert into the true and everlasting promised land. The Old Testament promised land is just a type and foreshadowing of this greater promised land to come. Okay, a little bit more and then I'll, uh, I'll pause to see if I've, in how many ways I've baffled you. All right. Verse 15, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth. Um, now, again, in terms of the imagery of Revelation, the power of evil is always in the mouth, as is the power of good. We're talking about spiritual warfare here. And so the serpent pours out water like a river out of his mouth. In this respect, too, he shows himself a kind of antichrist, because Jesus says, whoever is thirsty, come to me and drink, etc. So the, here is the antichrist version of whoever is thirsty, come to me and drown. <laughs> That's the devil's version. Um, also, if we're tracking, you have release from Egypt, and then immediately Israel is faced with the peril of water, the Red Sea. And now you have, you have this, they're released into the, the church is released into the wilderness, and immediately you have this danger of water. Just as God preserved his people of old, he'll preserve us still. He delivered them from Pharaoh. He'll deliver us from the Pharaoh of hell. So out of his mouth comes a river of water to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help, to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. 
I think there's actually a lot going on here, but it's, it's quite a subtle argument, and it would take a long time to be satisfying to you, so I won't even attempt to make it satisfying. But the earth, especially in Genesis at the death of Abel, the earth is said to drink in his blood. And there are various scripture references you can find where the earth in its, in its perverted fallen state, in its cursed state, is seen as devouring man. This is obvi quite obvious in terms of death. Putting a body into the tomb is putting it into the mouth of the earth that is devouring and digesting the, the human. There's a sense in which the earth itself is turned against us. And here on account of Christ, already a foreshadowing that the earth now has already begun to be changed, to be renewed, so that now the swallowing, rather than being a curse, preserves preserves and helps the church so that the mouth, uh, the, the, uh, excuse me, the earth swallows up the water that comes from the dragon's mouth. Like I said, it may not be satisfying to you. That's okay. We're at a cost-benefit thing here, so I'm going to keep going. Verse 17, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. I mean, thus, St. Paul uh, put on the full armor of God. And look at how, she, how the, her offspring, her children are described. I mean, this is beautiful. This is why there's absolutely nothing wrong, and Luther even held to this, as seeing uh, Mary as our mother too. After all, if Christ is our brother, how on earth do we not see Mary as our mother? Let's just not turn her into a pseudo-deity. So we are her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God. That's how Christians are described, as keeping the commandments of God. Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony, the witness, the martyria of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea, namely the dragon. And that, comes, that leads us into chapter 13 of what comes next namely the beast, the first beast that rises out of the sea and serves the dragon. Okay, that takes us through chapter 12. Let me pause and see if you have any questions, any thoughts. Uh, yes, sir. Are we running the mic today? Thank you, David. So I actually have two questions. Uh, one, in terms of the timing of, uh, of uh, when Satan fell, what do you make of Luke 10 where he says... Uh, where Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Absolutely. Past tense. Yeah. So it looked like you were saying that Satan fell after the ascension in Revelation, but in Luke it looks like he's falling before the ascension. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, except the Bible isn't really thinking that way and speaking that way. Neither is Jesus, neither is Revelation. Like We, we can't really get out our stopwatches here. And so, so the point being, both with Jesus and Revelation, why they're not in any contradiction, is the Christ event is what leads to the fall of Satan. Specifically there in, in Luke, it's the sending of the 70 and them casting out the demons, right? And he says, I, see, I, I saw Satan, namely as they were casting out the demons. It's fl frankly fluid and open enough to even surmise, if you want to be really tight chronologically, that Jesus is having a vision of what's to come. Hmm. Interesting. I don't, yeah, think, I mean, I, I don't think that that's at all necessary. I think that that's misunderstanding the apocalyptic genre as well as the way that I was actually preached. pushing towards not being too, too tightly chronological Excellent. about it. <laughs> Good <point. laughs> Because Good it looked choice. like yeah. there was, if you go that way, it looks like there's a contradiction. But, you know, yeah. but if you recognize it's not, yeah, I very much doubt that, that Jesus and John... Actually, it's Jesus and Jesus, because Jesus is the one giving this revelation, so Jesus would be contradicting, contradicting right. him. Right, right. Probably right. didn't happen. Now, the second, the second question I have is this, this whole business about the, the water coming out of, of the devil, and the, the, I think you brought up that the, the earth opens up to, to, to receive the water like a grave. Mm -hmm. it, I, I can't help but think of baptism when you talk about Absolutely. that. Is this like an anti-baptism that Absolutely. we're talking about? Is it supposed to be that? Absolutely. 
Because, yeah, I mean, you really have three themes going on here if you really want to stretch it out, if I was going to preach a sermon on this. You've got three themes because you've got, you've got the desert and the water that threatens the woman. That's, that's the Red Sea motif where Israel is created. But it's also called a flood. And the earth drinks it in just like where the earth drinks in the waters of the, of the deluge in the time of Noah. And so you have a baptism now saves you, 1 Peter 3 motif going on. You also, of course, going back even further, at the dawn of creation, you have water and God creating in and through water. The Spirit's hovering over the face of the deep. And what is the devil trying to do but an anti-creation, a destruction of the whole thing? Okay. So a destruction of baptism, and really properly understood, though I don't have time to defend it, baptism is the foundation of the earth. It's, it's the foundation of everything. It's why God made things the way he did. It's why Genesis 1 reads the way it reads. It's because it is all intended by God to leave up, lead up to baptism. So, yeah, the devil's doing his anti-baptism here. Okay. Which becomes apparent in, in another image, the image of 666, the image of the beast, which we'll get to next week. Anti-baptism. Having been in the public school as a teacher, I find this um, connection important. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God. Think of what has been removed from our, um, our classrooms. I'm reading a book by Noah Webster, the, one of the pivotal people to have uh, established uh, public school in America. And one of the critical things that was promoted in the founding of our nation was the teaching of the Ten Commandments and the Gospel. This is this matches from my viewpoint. Yeah, absolutely, they, absolutely. And Ten Commandments is true. I would say it's broader than that. It's really the entire teaching of Jesus, the entire revelation of the Scriptures. It's that beautiful language you find uh, throughout Jesus' speech, especially at the end of Matthew 28. But it's the terunton tas and tolas that from tereo, the treasuring, the guarding, the keeping, the rejoicing in. My antolas, my commandments. That's the language there. So it's really the whole, the whole teaching of, of Jesus, the Son of God. Yeah. Ten commandments included. All right, my friends. We'll see you next week. The Lord be with you.